So Micah, we will finish it this evening, chapters 6 and 7. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you. <clears throat> and we thank you so much, Lord, just for who you are, who, what your heart is towards us. And we say with the prophet Micah, who is a God like you, Lord, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of your heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. There's no one like you, Lord. No one like you who delights in mercy, but Lord, we want to be like you. We thank you that your word says that even as we behold as in a mirror, Lord, you, we are being transformed into your likeness from glory to glory. We thank you for that. I just pray that you help us see that image this evening, that our heart would be exposed to it, that we would change, Lord, as a result of just being here this evening. Be with the, our prayer, the prayer, be with the rock the world, be with the nursery, Lord. Protect this gathering of your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Micah, you know, in the summer, sometimes it gets a little choppy, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Anyone need a Bible? Bible? Raise your hand. You will have a Bible come to you. It gets a little bit, a bit choppy, and so, man, I think we've been in Micah three times, but each week we've had another week intervening with some, something else, and... Uh, and so we, we've been out of it, I, th I think, a couple of weeks now. We're going to finish up. <clears throat> I just want to remind you uh, where Micah falls. And so I'm going to put one of my favorite projections, the timeline up. This is the, the timeline of the prophets. So here you have it, Micah. He is about the same time as uh, Ahaz here. Uh, Hosea is here, up here. Can you go up here a little? This is Amos, I believe, right up there. And then you have Isaiah here. Isaiah, he prophesied for a long, long time. He was actually prophesying, go ahead down to Micah again, all the way down here. So they were actually contemporaries. Hosea was a prophet to the south and the north, um, but uh, uh, Micah here um, also uh, prophesied to both. Uh, he, he, he came from the south, but he was, uh, he was really a prophet to both. And uh, he was a country boy. Isaiah was a city boy. And uh, they prophesied a very similar message, kind of like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, with such a blessing teaching 
on Jeremiah and Ezekiel and just to see how the Spirit was saying the same thing at the same time. It's about a hundred years later after this when they were both prophesying just before the destruction of Jerusalem, just before Nebuchadnezzar came in and wiped out uh, Jerusalem and the, there were, all the Israelites were exiled uh, to, to Babylon. Ezekiel and Jeremiah saying the same thing. Well, Micah and Isaiah saying the same thing. In fact, I think it is, is it chapter 2 of Isaiah and one of the chapters in Micah verbatim. Uh, really, uh, they're, they're, they're the exact same prophecy there. And so uh, he prophesied at this time, Ahaz, very, very wicked king, uh, shut up the temple at one point, closed the doors on it. It was a really dark, dark time uh, in Israel. And so uh, anyway, Anyone tired of seeing this? I'll never get tired of seeing my timeline. But, uh, <laughs> wow, really? You guys are just being nice. You're not tired of my timeline? But anyway, so uh, in chapter 6, we see, you know, one of the, the, one of the reasons I just emphasize the reading of the Old Testament I did this morning in church is just you see things in the Old Testament repeatedly, but something, you see some unique, you get a unique view into the heart of God that really you don't see in the New Testament in, in the same kind of way. And Isaiah does the same thing, but his contemporary, but so does Micah. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord says, hear now what the Lord says, verse 1 of chapter 6. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, O mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong, strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? He's pleading with his people. What have I done to you? I mean, isn't it amazing, the creator of the heavens and the earth, he's lowering himself, pleading to him as if he had to do that? And the, uh, there's, there's, there's hardly a, um, you know, a, a good analogy on planet earth. I don't know, a CEO of Procter & Gamble going down and speaking to uh, the, 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 the lowliest employees or something and pleading with them. No CEO would humble himself like that. Yet hear the Lord of the universe. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. So this is really interesting. Um, in verse 2, it says at the end, it says, the Lord has a complaint against you. At the end of verse 2. That's a legal term. It, some translations actually say the word lawsuit. The Lord has a lawsuit against you. Some translations say a controversy. But it's a legal term. And he's saying, look, the Lord has a lawsuit. And then in verse 3, he says, come and testify against me. Tell me what it is. What have I done to you? 
Oh, how the Lord loves his people. And, and just going through the word of God, going through the Old Testament, God sending four heavyweights, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah, in close succession to each other, calling his people back to him. He loves you. He loves us. He loves his children. And, and, and whether he's, as we were talking about this morning, whether he's, he, he's God as judge or, or the God of love, those things are merged in, 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 in his character. He's always calling us back. If he's judging us, his children, it's to call us back. It's, if, it's to, if he's a God of love, it's always calling us deeper. Oh, my people, verse 3, what have I done to you? Testify against me. Get up on the stand. Verse 4, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In other words, I've sent you prophets, prophetesses. I've sent you men. I've sent you women of God to call you back to me. But meanwhile, they are in full rebellion. The first uh, two or three chapters of Micah are all about Micah confronting them with their behavior. Uh, verse 12 of uh, uh, then of chapter 5, we get into the same thing. There, there were sorceries in their land. There were soothsayers, verse 13 of chapter 5. There were carved images and sacred pillars. Uh, other gods that they were, uh, that they were putting up and the, the, the rich were ripping off the poor. What have I done to you, oh my people, that you're doing all this? And how have I wearied you? You know, think about that. They're, they're, what he's responding to is something that's happened that he is observing. He's God. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. And, and what he sees them, oh, we're wearied of this God. We're wearied of his prophets. We're wearied of his word. It had just become religion to them. This is Jesus hates religion. Because this is what religion does. It empties out the life from people that coming to church becomes a burden to them. Serving the Lord in Sunday school, worship, whatever, becomes a burden. It's, 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 it becomes wearying to them. And, and the Lord's like, wait, what have I done? What have I done to weary you? How have I wearied you? There's one thing I know about the Lord or a, or a man or a woman who knows the Lord. They're never wearied by the Lord, ever, ever. He's always supplying. He's always loving. He's always exhorting. He's always bringing them in. So I love these Old Testament prophets. It says I, and he's just reminding them, I, got, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I re- redeemed you from the house of bondage. Now, some of you have heard me say this, but in the book of Leviticus, it says that when Israel, 1.5 million of them, left Egypt, they were a nation of hunchbacks physically. And that's because they had been beaten as slaves for so long. They were physically just hunched over. 
First Peter chapter one says, "I redeemed you from your aimless conduct." Here he's saying, um, "Here he's saying, I redeemed you from that that slavery. It was not only a spiritual and emotional slavery; it, their physical bodies had been affected by it." And 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 you know, how many times have we discussed? So important when we get alone with God, just to remember what we've been saved from. Verse five, oh my people, remember how, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now, definitely uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, where this sorcerer, a demonic sorcerer of, uh, named Balaam who knew about God, who was a, uh, he was a descendant of a people who knew about God. The Midianites, they, they can trace their way back to, um, to, 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 to Abraham and Abraham's family. So he knew of the things of the Lord. He knew the truth of the Lord, but he had become a sorcerer. The king of the Midianites came to him and said, you know, Israel's coming. They've left the land of Egypt. They left Egypt in tatters. The army was uh, buried in the Red Sea. And they've defeated a couple other nations. I'm not going to be able to stop them. Would you get up on a mountain to curse them? (laughs) It's just one of my favorite stories. You know, he pleads with them to, to curse them. And, and he gets up there, and Balak's all like, ooh, cool, can't wait to hear this. And Balaam from the top of the mountains looking at the, uh, the nation of Israel, and then all of a sudden out of his mouth, uh, he starts saying, oh, how shall I curse whom God is not cursed? How shall I denounce whom the Lord is not denounced? From the tops of the rocks I see him, referring to Israel, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his. In other words, this was a blessing. And then Balak gets all mad and uh, he, he just all upset and uh, takes him to another mountain and says, look, you know, you need to do it this time. Curse them. And, and he gets up there uh, and he says again, he starts speaking again. He says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, as he said, and will, not, will he not do? Then he says, behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. So Balak's going nuts. I mean, he just paid Balaam all this money. And then out of his mouth, Balaam says, God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. He says, there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor is there divination against Israel. It now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what God has done. In other words, he's blessing them. And, and so Micah is telling the people, he's, uh, God is actually telling the people through Micah, 
remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counsel and what Balaam answered him? They were trying to have a conspiracy. Balak was trying to stir up a conspiracy and all that could happen is that this man got up there and blessed my people. And do you remember that? And he's just, he's just recounting to them the goodness of the Lord to his people. You know, it's just so shocking. One of the things that um, what Balaam said of Israel, he, he said, God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. Of course, if we, any fair reading of everything that had happened to that point, there was nothing but iniquity and wickedness the whole time. And this is a picture, it's a foreshadowing of the righteousness of Christ. This is why the lambs were, were, were put on the altar every morning and every evening. It's that blood of the lamb, the unblemished lamb, the perfect lamb, would cover their sin. And so the God says, I don't see wickedness, so I'm not going to punish it. And it's this kind of mercy that the Lord has for his people that, that, that God is trying to remind them of. Why is it that you're walking in rebellion against me? What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? For six, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And now, now verses six and seven, it, what's going on here, there's a shift, and he's going to start talking about what their response is, what their mindset is. Verse 6, shall I come before him with burnt offering, with a calf of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with th thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of all? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So they're thinking, what do we need to do to get back in God's favor? Maybe we can just make a bunch of sacrifices on the altar. Religion. And what, the, what is the response to that? Verse 8, probably Micah's most famous verse. He has shown you, O man, what is good. So this is God responding. Are you following me now here? 3, 4, and 5, it's God speaking. 6 and 7, Israel speaking in return. 8, God speaking. This wonderful, glorious verse here in verse 8. He's saying, look, I'm not asking you for a sacrifice on my altar. That's not what I'm asking you. In verse 8, he says, he's shown you, O man, what is good. And what is it? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants. That's what God wants from us. He, he doesn't want just the exercise of religion, us checking off the boxes, uh, doing religious stuff. He doesn't want us coming to church, checking off the box, and 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 running away from church. The you know the, the the second it ends, and and just so we can say we've come, or to open up our Bible just so we can uh, you know knock off you know again check off a box. They're thinking in verse 6, well, maybe I should come to him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, maybe 10,000 or thousands of rams we can offer on the altar. He's like, stop it. 
I just want you to walk humbly with me. And then over and over I'm reminded that really Christianity, it's so simple. All we do is complicated. It's a simple love relationship with Jesus. That's all it is. And all we want to do is complicate it. Great verse, verse 8. The Lord's voice cries to the city. Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those, who, those with the wicked scales? So what he goes on in verse 9 is saying, look, I don't care about all your religious offerings. It's your conduct Monday through, or is it Sunday through, through Friday that I care about? In other words, they were coming offering on the Sabbath, Saturday, their offerings, and this is what they're doing on Sunday through Friday. What are they doing? Verse 11. There's wicked this scales and ripping people off in the marketplace. Shall I count pure those who are uh, the, the, the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? Verse 12, for her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You know, God in his faithfulness will be a judge And he is faithful to punish us. Why? So that he can bring us back to him. And that's where he says, I will make you sick by striking you. Verse 14, you shall eat but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. Verse 15, you shall sow but not reap. You shall tread the olives but you shall not anoint yourself with oil. You shall make sweet wine, but you shall not drink wine. Have you ever tried to fight God? This is exactly what it feels. Anything you do, anything you put your hand to in life, it just doesn't, it doesn't prosper. And God is faithful to do that in our lives, to bring us back to him. Again, verse 15, you shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but you shall not your, anoint yourselves with oil. And you, you shall make sweet wine, but not drink wine. Verse 16, for the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. Now, in 1 Kings, where are you, 1 Kings? chapter 16, verse 25, it says this of Omri. Who's who's this Omri guy? Omri was one of the kings of Israel in the north after Solomon. There was a civil war. Ten tribes went to the north. They had a long, long succession of wicked kings for about 250 years. In the south, in Judah and Jerusalem, There were good kings, there were bad kings. Good kings, bad kings. Good kings, bad kings. In the north, all bad kings. Omri was the first of the worst. It says of him in 1 Kings, but Omri, verse 25, wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. And then it says in verse 16, the statutes of Omri are kept, all the works of Ahab's house are done. Who is Ahab? 
He was his son. Who was that? All right, Sam. Who was that? That's Sam? All right, Sam. Very good. Yeah, the Bible contest, the Bible trivia contest. That's right. Omri's son was Ahab. And it's interesting that 1 Kings 16.25 says, But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him because it's the same thing of Ahab. It's the same thing. He outdid his father. And he was the man along with, who was his wife? Jezebel. Yeah, very good. One more time, Jezebel. She was one wicked, wicked woman. Wicked woman. Wicked woman. And the, reason, the thing that Ahab did that was so incredibly wicked, there were other kings that did worse stuff. There really were in Israel. But what Ahab did, he, he, he eliminated, he pushed out completely. He was the first king to do this, the worship of, of, of God, the worship of Jehovah and the word of God and replace it with the Baals. Everyone else before him was pretending like they did. They were pretending like they, at least they pretended. You know, I'm glad we're in a nation that the politicians, at least they have to pretend that they love God, you know? (laughs) Could you imagine if it was like the time of Ahab? No, let's, let's just completely go full on and worship the Baals. And that's what, that's what, um, uh, that's what Ahab did. And, and when worship the Baals, that means ritualized temple prostitution. That means child sacrifice. And it means all kinds of other horrors. And it says of Israel, this is quite a ways time after Ahab. It says, you walk in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your ha- inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. Okay, chapter 7. There's another shift here. Christina, do I, can, I, can you bring up my, my clock so you guys are not just tortured terribly this evening by me going way over time? Chapter 7. We see what happens to many of us who serve the Lord. Micah goes into a pity party. Isn't it good to see prophets do this? I mean, it makes me feel a lot better that, you know, that from time to time, uh, it doesn't make it right, but it's the same thing. We saw Jeremiah do the same thing. He said, woe is me, woe is me. You thought like Hollywood or Broadway made up that line. No, 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 no. It comes right from the Bible. Woe is me. For I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes, and there is no cluster to eat. Of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. And then he says this, the faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. Now that's a lie. That's not true. Remember, Elijah said the same thing when he was having his pity party. And, and believe me, I, I am not pointing the finger at him. I've been there myself. But just when you get to the place where you're thinking, there's not a faithful person out there. 
There's not one person in the body of Christ that is living with integrity. Verse, middle of verse 2, they all wait in blood. Every man hunts for his brother that they may successfully do evil with hand. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bride. And the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Nor shall there be, now there shall be perplexity. He says, do not trust in a friend. So <clears throat> this will kill this will kill your life. When you adopt when you embrace this spirit. Verse 5, do not trust in a friend, do not put your confidence in a companion. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. I quote it all the time. I love the verse. Love trusts at all times. It's hard to trust after your trust has been breached a gazillion times. But the Bible says you just can't stop trusting people. It doesn't mean that you let a child molester babysit your kids. No, that, that you wouldn't be a good shepherd, a good parent. If you did that, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just, when you, when you, with people, if, if there's such distrust in your life, and unfortunately, this is what happens to the people of God when they get wounded, when they get wounded by the people of God. And there are times when I feel so hurt by the people of God, I'm like, that's it. I'm never going to trust anyone again. Me, that happens to me. It's a bad, dangerous place to be in. He's in a dangerous place here. Again, he says in verse 2, this faithful man has perished from the earth. Wrong. Elijah thought the same thing. There were 7,000. God told him, no, there's 7,000 faithful who have not bowed down to the Baals. And I'm so encouraged that wherever I go in the world, wherever I've gone, and I've just gone all over the place. There's always beautiful, sweet believers in Christ, sisters, brothers there. Always, wherever, I, wherever you go. It's the most wonderful thing. It's incredible. It was great to be in Hungary. And, and, and you know, I was talking with a guy who's planning a church north of the Arctic Circle. I mean... Come on, what's up with that? I mean, <laughs> he is living in a city, the highest, the, the northernmost city in the world, somewhere in Siberia, but he's not settling for a church plant there. He's going up into the Arctic Circle where there's these nomadic guys and women and men who, who care for reindeer. And just such a sweet, wonderful, faithful couple. You can't run away from the people of God. They're all around the world. Different denominations, but the fundamentals all in place. Believing in the cross, the resurrection. And, and, and so he's in a dangerous place here. And in verse 6, 
really interesting verse here because Jesus actually quotes this, but in a completely different way. Um, Micah says, for son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men of his own household. So he he is quoting a, a phenomenon at the time because when families disintegrate, so is society, and no question at the time families were disintegrated. Unfortunately, he's taken it to such a place where he's like, woe is me, I'm done, I'm living in the society. And it is tough. You know, when you look out and you see the breakdown of the family, uh, you want to cry out, woe is me. Why did you put me in this century, Lord? Why didn't you put me, you know, a century ago? God has called you to this time, Jew, 2014 in Boston, because he wanted you here. You have some gifts that this generation needs. Verse 7, praise the Lord. He's having a pity party. And until this happens, until verse 7 happens, you'll be stuck in verses 1 through 6. Praise the Lord for verse 7. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God, will hear me. And I was just sharing with a, a, a dear brother this afternoon, the, the, the more frustrated you get with your life, the more you need to turn to the Lord in your own time with him. When you're frustrated and upset with how things are going, or a pity party or whatever, that is not the time to avoid the word of God and the fellowship of his people. It's not the time. It's the last thing you should be doing. I just love this this turning to the Lord in in verse 7. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Now, this is great. This is great stuff here. Ah! Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. You talk about a contrast in one chapter, Proverbs chapter uh, chapter 24, is it? it says that you know, the righteous man falls seven times, but each time they arise. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his Righteousness. I like that verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I think he may be talking about his own little pity party right here. It's a sin to dwell in self-pity you know, for, for long periods of time. And, 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 and I think he may be t- talking about himself. He says, I will bear the indignation because I've sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Now, he may be, what, he's, what he, what he um, also may be doing is 
interceding, stepping in the gap or stepping in the gap on behalf of his people and just say, I'm going to stay here and stand in the gap for my people. I am, you know, they've sinned against the Lord. I'm going to bear what's coming, but I'm going to wait for him and I'm going to wait for his salvation. What a great example of intercessory prayer this is. And then verse 9 ends, I will see his righteousness. You will. You continue moving forward. doesn't matter what the nature of your trials is. It says, you will be brought forth to the light. You'll see his righteousness. Verse 10. This is a heavyweight chapter here. This is a great chapter. Then she, who is my enemy, will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord, your God? Now that's the voice that lies to us every single day. Where is your God? Why isn't he helping you more here? All it takes is moving forward. And shame will cover her who said to me, where's your God? My eye will see her. She will be trampled down like mud in the streets. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day, the, the decree shall go far and wide. In that day shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from the sea to sea and mountain to mountain, yet the land Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Now, time out. So verse 11 and 13, Micah does here what the prophets do that drives us crazy. What does he do? He just jumps to the future. Just starts talking about, just utters a prophecy about the future. So he's filled with the spirit here. He's talking um, in, 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 in verses 7 through 10. But then he just jumps into the future and he talks about a time after Jerusalem. This is 200 years in the future. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And the, the Lord will, will bring back his people. And verse 12 says, in that day that well, it says, in the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. So that's Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember when the walls in the temple is, is they order to be rebuilt after it had been destroyed? It says, in that day they shall become far and wide from Assyrian fortified cities, from the fortress to the river. So he's prophesying that there's going to be a regathering at that time. So this is pretty funky here. Jerusalem's not even destroyed yet. It's not even destroyed yet. It won't be for another couple hundred years at this point. But 11, 11 12, and 13 are for the, is a prophecy of the time after it'll be destroyed when the Lord will gather back the people. In verse 13, a, very, a fairly specific prophecy says the, all these people are going to come, but the land's going to be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. In other words, it will be. It will be, and this not only had midterm fulfillment, this had long-term fulfillment because when the Jews regathered in the 20th century, the land was completely desolate. When they came from all over the world and they repopulated Israel, or Palestine, I should say, the whole place was desolate. It was swamplands. And I've quoted this before. Mark Twain went there in the late 1800s, and he says, wait, this is the land of God's chosen people? You must be kidding me. You know, there's swamplands and you know, desolate places. Verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff. 
the flock of your heritage who dwell solitarily in a woodland. Solitary mean they're separate. The people of God are always called to be separate. They're, they're, w- w- Jesus says, the, the, the word of God says we're s- supposed to be in the world, but not of it. We're supposed to love the world and be friends, friends with the people in the world, but not be of it in the sense we don't imitate their behavior. That's why he says, you who dwell solitarily in the woodland. Sounds a lot like Balaam here. He's just looking at them. Um, they, they're, they're dwelling as a separate people. In the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and in Gilead. So Carmel, Bashan, and Gilead are three of the most fertile places in Israel as in the days of old. So he's just prophesying of the future, a time where there will be great prosperity in the land of Israel could very well be a reference to the millennial reign when Jesus comes back to reign in, um, after his return to earth. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them the wonders. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. They shall, uh, their ear shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. And, you know, some commentators say 16 and 17. This is this is a picture after the b- battle of Armageddon, which happens uh, you know, at the time of the uh, return of Christ. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Verse 17, they shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Remember, the battle of Armageddon is against Israel. And then this wonderful verse again, we've, we've, we've talked about this today. Who is like you, God? Who is a God like you? It's a rhetorical question. There is no God like God. Who pardons iniquity, passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever, and he delights in mercy. Who is a God like you? And again, you know, we have so much difficulty Understanding God's love for us because there is no one like God, so we don't have a good imitation anywhere. Now, as believers in Christ, we become more and more like Christ as we're being transformed into his, into his image. But a God who delights in forgiveness, who delights in forgiveness, who delights in it, forgiveness can be a chore, it can be a work can be the hardest thing in the world. The Bible says God delights in it. You know, when we sin against the Lord, or we do something that's opposed to his word, his response to us is so much different than than anybody else in the world. People require acts of penance. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if I am disrespectful to my wife, it's a good thing for me to go get her flowers. It's an act of penance. She needs that. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing <laughs> to go whatever to someone and and do something, a deed, to make up for what you've done. Many times 
it's, that's required in order to love someone. God doesn't need acts of penance. Because the Bible says that he sees no iniquity in Jacob, no wickedness, because of the blood of Christ, he covers us. We don't have to show up wondering whether, oh, I have these flowers for the Lord. I wonder if I, I only spent 50 bucks. I wonder if $200 I should have spent. It's not like that. Now, the Bible, of course, does say, John says, when he's talking about repentance, make sure you do deeds in, a, in accordance with repentance. And it's true that if we have a heart that is repentant before the Lord, we're going to do things that's going to reflect that. But I'm so thankful that the God of the Bible, the God who delights in mercy, the thief is on the cross. He's got his hands nailed to the cross, his feet nailed to the cross. He can't do any more acts of penance. It's not required. He's been made righteous by the sacrifice on the cross. Who is like Who is a God like you that delights in mercy? Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue subdue our iniquities. You will cast off our sins. Only God can do that into the depths of the sea. And then, then what he does, he puts a no fishing sign there. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Then there's a no fishing sign. Sorry, you can't go back in there. Try to fish those things out. You will give truth to Jacob, mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Powerful book, book of Micah. Next week, we move on to the book of Nahum. 